Welcome back to another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Shurek, where we talk about nonfiction books, and, and maybe too many nonfiction books, but I think we're enjoying it so far. This week, I have such a great guest with me. She wrote a book recently that was just such an eye-opening experience for me and something that I've been desperately trying to read more on. It's Mad World uh, by Misha Fraser Carroll. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. No, thank you for having me, Nathan, and thank you for the kind words about the book as well. Mad World, The Politics of Mental Health is out from Pluto Press right now. It's part of the Outspoken series. Can you say a little bit about what the Outspoken series is? Yes. So the Outspoken series is a series of kind of short political books um, that kind of give readers an introduction, but also an overview of different topics from a radical political perspective. So they've got books on, for example, feminism, on work, um, on borders, uh, on Islamophobia. Um, and my book is the one on mental health. And yeah, they're kind of short and aim to be really accessible, especially, I think originally it was kind of geared at slightly younger audiences, like maybe late teens and early 20s, but it's found a much broader audience beyond that as well. Well, I've seen you doing a couple interviews around on, and, and especially one of the podcasts that I'm just like a huge fan of, Death Panel, which is a healthcare of. Uh, kind of perspective from the left. And I know you recently did a, a good long interview with them. So uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to listen to it before I interviewed you because I just didn't want to <laughs> cross paths with some of their yeah. questions and stuff. But uh, I'm looking forward to listening to that right after I, we finish here. Yeah, I was fangirling so much. Um, <laughs> yeah. Podcast. They reached out to me last year to get a review up for their health communism book. And I was like, I've never felt cooler that an author has reached out. So uh, they yeah. do just incredible work. And so glad that we've both got to have interactions with like the great work that they're doing. Yeah, me too. So how did you get kind of interested in this topic? You wrote, um, you wrote this book kind of on the politics of mental health. And it does have a little bit of like the history of mental health from asylums forward into you know, the modern era. So how did this like kind of become a topic or an obsession for you that you wanted to report on it and then write this book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm like, where to start? <laughs> I feel like with mental health, it's one of those topics that I think before I had the language to kind of talk about it and the context, it was definitely something that was always around me, you know, in my family and in my community, but people weren't necessarily naming it as mental health. Um, but I also think, you know, my mum is a therapist. Um, she did psychology at university and things like this. So I think that like mental health also from a young age was something that I was uh, kind of cognizant of and kind of looking around at and thinking about, even if I wasn't describing it as mental health, like uh, emotions, how people interact with one another, how our personal experiences interact with the political world around us. Um, but I would say I kind of formally, I guess, came to the topic when I was at university. Um, so I uh, studied psychology at university. But simultaneously, when I was in my second year, I experienced a mental health crisis. And I think that that crisis, like for me, my experience was one of dissociation. And I talk about it a bit in the book, you know, this feeling of being out of my body um, and not quite like feeling like myself. Um, and I think I really noticed that that experience felt like it was a response to my conditions, you know, what was happening around me. Um, and I think that's when I started to kind of try to make these links between, you know, how does racism link to mental health? How does sexism link to it? How do our conditions of work link to? I think it's that thing of trying to make sense of my own experience. Um, and so kind of, I guess, shortly after that time, I had been doing a lot of writing and I decided that I wanted to kind of start up my own magazine. Um, so I started up a magazine, a student magazine called Blueprint, which was on the topic of mental health. And I commissioned lots of other students to talk about kind of a lot of it was testimonial, like first person experiences of their mental health. Um, and then after I graduated, I decided to run um, for the position of welfare officer on the students union. Um, and so that year, that was kind of a lot of on the ground kind of organizing around mental health and I guess like really like explicitly viewing it as a, a, a political issue. Um, and I did a lot of kind of campaigning around the intersection between race and mental health as well at that time. So 
for example, students, lots of students of color were coming to me and saying, you know, I really want to see a black therapist, but through the university counseling service, there are no black therapists. Like, what do I do? And I did a big kind of research project and campaign around that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I came to it. Um, and I think also I worked as a journalist after that for a number of years, mainly writing on race and racism. But I think I kind of came to this point where I started to kind of not really necessarily understand like where is the hard boundary between, for example, racial trauma and mental distress? You know, when does it cross the threshold from being an experience of suffering to being an experience of what we call mental illness? Um, and I just think that race and mental health, there's so much interaction. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where my interest in the topic comes from. You get into like the kind of the topic that it seems like it's been like a more forefront topic in the mental health sphere in the last like decade or so, but of like the, the mind body delineation between like conceiving mental health as a strictly like neurochemical problem to like something more wide ranging as, you know, something at least perpetuated uh, by society and um, there's a lot of interesting research going on about that now, but I feel like we're kind of almost at this like impasse stage with like the mental health field of like not fully departure from like the strictly medical model, but not fully endorsing of a more like liberalized view of mental health. Um, you know, when you're reporting on this, is it is it kind of hard to like write about these I think like almost different models for how we treat or or how we even talk about mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the different models, it gets really complicated, right? Because I, in the book, I look at like a few different kind of theories of how our models have developed. I look at kind of the history of how we think about mental health and describe how, for example, you know, kind of before the 18th century, we had lots of models that were kind of very biological. So they had a theory of like the four humors, mm -hmm. which were that like, you know, bile and phlegm and things like this, if they were imbalanced, like that's what caused what they called madness at the time. And so a lot of the treatments then were kind of, you know, bloodletting and purging and these very invasive biological methods. And then later on, um, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, you get these more, um, these approaches they called moral treatment which were more focused on kind of um, the social world. And they had these ideas of like, oh, we just need to get people producing and distracted. And it's more, if you make adjustments to their social life, that will kind of treat a mental distress. And, you know, I kind of tell the story that goes all the way up to the present um, of how, you know, then you have the eugenics movement, which again is this move back to the biological. And then you get kind of... Um, Following the Holocaust, lots of people who were categorized as mad and mentally ill were killed um, under Nazi Germany. And so, again, after that, you kind of get this move away from these biological eugenic kind of models towards psychoanalysis. Um, and then kind of like the theory that I talk about um, is I draw on the work of the cultural theorist Mark Fisher, who talks about this idea that actually as neoliberalism and neoliberal capitalism um, kind of emerges, we get this shift again back to very biological individual um, kind of approaches. So this chemical imbalance theory, which is something that's often talked about, um, it's kind of a psychiatric concept, but I feel like we talk about it all the time. Just kind of in, <laughs> just cool. Yeah, everyone, it's, everyone's always referencing like, oh, my serotonin levels or, you know, something like that. And it's like, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think anyone really knows how complicated this stuff is. <laughs> Definitely. And like, you must see it, you know, on TikTok, like the people being like, how to hack your dopamine. <laughs> right. And, you know, these kind of um, pseudo-scientific or pop-scientific understandings of what it, uh, what mental health means. Um, and I feel like, yeah, that concept of individual illness, individual mm -hmm. disorder, individual imbalance um, is very prominent right now. But then I do also try to complicate that story because I don't think it's necessarily that simple. Like, you've also got kind of the emergence of like the popularity of therapy speak, right? You know, people mm -hmm. often be like- oh, Especially I'd, TikTok there, once again. <laughs> yeah, I'd be interested to hear about the things that you see because yeah, like this thing of like, oh, it's, you know, my boundaries, like I'm just setting a boundary or mm -hmm. I don't know, everyone's talking about trauma and trauma bonding and yeah. all of the terms 
that have come through the therapy world. And I think that while a lot of the solutions we get offered from our healthcare systems are like, you know, you, you just need to take this drug and these kind of biological interventions, also kind of just like in popular discourse, we have a lot of um, more therapeutic or, you know, mindfulness. Everyone should be on their mindfulness app. Everyone should be doing yoga. Everyone mm-hmm. should be journaling. There are kind of these interventions that are not necessarily um, subscribing to this individual illness or imbalance model, um, but they're still very popular. And I think while we often might think of the two as being in opposition, um, actually, I think what unites them is that they both take very individual approaches, right? Like therapy itself, um, while you might be talking about social things and talking about the family and, you know, community and things like this, therapy, like it's it's a one-on-one kind of approach to mental health. Mm -hmm. Uh, And inherently, you know, in many ways, there's a, a limit there in terms of how it's quite individualistic. Um, And so, yeah, I kind of see these different models as not necessarily being in stark competition, um, but kind of, yeah, coexisting and being united through taking this very individualistic approach, which I argue is kind of part of contemporary life under neoliberalism. Well, talking about like treating mental health through individualistic means, there also is, uh, and we'll circle back to this, but there is kind of a more communal aspect of it in Italy. And I want to get back to the Italy component of this because it's it's a really fascinating kind of development within psychiatry. But for as far as like the individual things go, I mean, it's just something that I see in, in the United States all the time is that, you know, things like therapy apps or, you know, practicing yoga or these types of things, um, they're, they're, it's such an individual task. And like the the quickest way for me to even like identify or think about it is like just things that are done in order to make you more productive. And that's why like so many jobs now offer like, you know, we have uh, better talk or whatever the apps are like that. They'll, they'll pay for your subscription fee to these things and they'll pay for, uh, you know, a yoga teacher to come in, you know, when work starts and do like a 15 minute yoga class. But it's like, it's not for the means of like actual treatment of illness. It's not for the means of like bettering your health or wellness. It's like, it's all for the fact that like studies show that if you provide these to your workers, like you get X amount more output from people. And mm-hmm. when we, when we talk about mental health in like such a, I, I think like almost a categorically like statistic manner of just like how much improvement you have or whatever, like it really, it, it lessens the impact of like what you're like getting better and becoming healthier. And these are really tr- troubling topics to talk about sometimes, but like it is almost always like in terms of just like becoming a more efficient worker. Uh, which is, you know, just like where we are at with psychiatry at this point. Yeah, a hundred percent. And like mental health under capitalism doesn't mean being necessarily genuinely well mm-hmm. or like healing or joy or like flourishing, any of these things that are kind of above a baseline. Like, and this extends to physical health too. Like when we talk about health, we're usually talking about this kind of uh this this baseline that really just means the absence of what we call illness, the absence of like extreme suffering. Um, And I, you know, this is a central argument to the book um, that our definitions of health are really, really wrapped up in basically, can you go to work? Like often kind of nine to five, go into the, I mean, now it's office jobs or service jobs are kind of the predominant means of production. Can you go into work um, and be exploited for your labor? Um, and, you know, I, I, I look at, for example, the Diagnostic, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, which is the name of kind of, you know, what they sometimes call the psychiatric Bible, this book that kind of describes um, all of the things that we call mental illness and uh, has these criteria um, for basically, can you get a diagnosis or not? And when you look at this manual, um, the word work appears in it almost 400 times. You know, work is one of the central yardsticks that we use for measuring, is this an illness or not? Mm -hmm. Is this a disorder or not? Um, And you see it with, you know, diagnoses like depression. I know lots of people have gone to try and get a depression diagnosis, especially at uni, you know, people who would uh, kind of take the little test that you have to take um, and they'd be told, well, it's not interfering with your ability to work you're still meeting your deadlines, like you're fine, (laughs) just carry on. 
Um, and you see that with lots of mental illness categories. You know, one of the central metrics is, does it interfere with your ability to go to work or to go to school or to go about daily life? Um, and so that means that if your ability to be exploited is always the central metric, then like you say, these workplace initiatives, you know, I've seen a lot of them in my own, you know, various workplaces that I've been in where you get free therapy or free subscriptions to these mindfulness apps. Um, or, you know, at university, they have these puppy days, which <laughs> sounds so ridiculous now, where they bring in dogs and, you know, you get yeah. to have a nice time with the dogs. And I, I try to explicitly make the point that I don't think any of these things are straightforwardly bad or that they can't be pathways to healing. Like I think lots of us know the potential benefits of mindfulness or therapy, um, but they are always at the service mm -hmm. of work. They're always at the service of profit. Um, and so that means that, especially because work for so many of us is actually a thing that has a very negative impact on our mental health. It's like they're trying to make us well enough to be exploited and to go back to the very place that is harming mm -hmm. our mental health. Um, and I argue that, you know, we need to separate work um, from this concept of health. And the only the only way towards like genuine healing is to separate the two um, because we want to be better than that baseline. Right. We want to experience genuine joy. Um, and I think that within the structures of capitalist work, that's Mental just like not important. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not the goal, right? right. Uh, yeah. I've had so many conversations with my friends over like the last several years, and especially with like the rise of TikToks, and I think like people uh, leaning more into like self diagnoses. But the, the 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 line between what we in the United States, and I don't know if this is the same in the UK, but the line between like a mental illness and a severe mental illness is kind of how we categorize things. Is is typically like you would often put depression in just the mental illness category, but you would put schizophrenia in the severe mental illness category. And the conversations mm. that I've had with so many of my friends have just been around, like, the idea that, like, the way that we separate these ideas in between, like, a non-disabled mental illness and a disabled mental illness, like, and, and the way that we categorically think about these things really has to do with, like, the percentage of people with this illness that can work, like, a normal functioning job and the people that can't like the people that it interferes too much with work or that it interferes with workplace balances or whatever. And because I have so many friends that have, you know, been recently diagnosed with, you know, anxiety disorders or depression or bipolar. And it's really difficult to like actually apply for disability. But with schizophrenia, that's viewed as one of the severe mental illnesses. I'm using air quotes for anyone severe mental illnesses, but it just really the the big component of how we think about it is just basically like can you put in 40 hours of work like that's that's really all the the differences and like the 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 resources that we provide for people are basically only only summed up by that little like marker and it's not really about like satisfactory life or ability to you know maintain a house or ability to like have flourishing friendships or anything like that any like metric that we would truly think of as like a happiness metric those don't really qualify it really is just like yeah can you work a full job and if if so then you're not disabled no matter what you have and it's just a it's a wild phenomenon it really is and i think you see that hard separation like manifest in so many different ways like you know in these like mental health awareness campaigns you so often see this thing, right, of like, oh, everybody feels low sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's normal to feel blue. It's normal to feel anxious. Um, but actually, the experience of, for example, hearing voices or seeing visions, you don't see the, these experiences um, an effort for them to be kind of uh, rehabilitated or brought back into this mm -hmm. kind of normal concept of, you know, it's okay. And when we talk about mental health awareness, we're really talking about awareness, I often think of like quite a limited um, specific set of experiences. These are the socially yeah. acceptable ones. Exactly. And I think, you know, in many ways, it's interesting because depression, anxiety, we do often see discourses that frame them as illness, but simultaneously, they're also kind of to an extent framed as like a normal part of contemporary life. Like if you're not a little, you don't have a little depressy, you know, like yeah. you, you're, you're like on the outside. <laughs> a little hint, a little sprinkle. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, but I think, you know, you see these other experiences that 
are very much seen as like, oh, well, that's kind of beyond the pale. That's not um, something that can be, uh, you know, like recovery narratives. A lot of people, I think, talk about, especially, you know, diagnoses like schizophrenia um, or other kind of diagnoses under the label of psychosis. People will say, oh, that's kind of a form of madness that is often framed as like, it, it can never, you can never recover mm-hmm. or you can never be kind of um, reassimilated back into societal conceptions of normativity or you know work and things like this um and I think that that's a kind of a a line that we should interrogate and think about you know why is it that there are certain experiences that are seen as yeah like these are okay like it happens to everyone and other ones that are seen as very separate and I think the um scholar Liat Ben Moshe, who wrote um, a book called Decarcerating Disability, mm-hmm. which I draw on a lot in the book, um, she has this concept that she calls carceral sanism, um, where she kind of argues that there are kind of specific diagnoses that are seen as um, kind of so disruptive to the societal order um, that they are treated uh, in ways characterized by punishment. Um, and, you know, I think you can look at, again, diagnoses like schizophrenia, but also sometimes, sometimes bipolar. Um, or personality disorder diagnoses, a lot of these things are seen as kind of um, having some overlap also with like criminalized behaviors, mm-hmm. whereas depression, anxiety, there's a way of framing them um, that's like, don't worry, they're not dangerous. No, I think we've we've definitely like with certain illnesses, we've never lost that moral argument for what they are, where like the moralness of a, a mental illness and even a lot of physical illnesses like historically had always been present, you know, like, I mean, leprosy you know, dating back centuries was always viewed as, you know, a person that was not morally upright would get leprosy. And it does seem that we are still latched on to these notions of schizophrenia. I mean, this is something I interact with, like, in harassment DMs that I get pretty regularly of of people just Mm -hmm. insinuating or claiming me to be, you know, a horrible person or a violent person just because of, you know, a diagnostic thing. And it seems Mm -hmm. like as a society, we aren't willing to, like, full come out and say that but we will we will still you know hold on to as much of that as we possibly can in the ways that we especially how news stories talk about people with schizophrenia and and like the the only (laughs) the only stories of schizophrenia in like the public knowledge are are stories of like violence and true crime Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and i think some of it interacts with this concept been thinking a lot about like knowability like what is framed as like a knowable clear concrete Mm -hmm. understandable experience and what's framed as something that's like a bit more elusive or like you can't understand it I think again kind of coming back to that like oh we all feel this way sometimes we all like I feel like depression and anxiety often um are framed as these experiences that are very legible and clear and understandable and diagnoses like schizophrenia for example it is that thing of, yeah, the framing of violence, I feel like is also framed through this lens of like, oh, you can't know or you can't predict or you never know. And I think you see this with like arguments that come up when people are like, well, but what if someone's going to be violent? Like, what if they're going to harm someone else? Um, and that kind of being the assumption, like if, if you don't know or understand something, violence is like the the expected outcome. Um, and that's something, yeah, I try to interrogate a lot, like, yeah, the way that that we seem to have this divide between experiences that, um, yeah, are acceptable to talk about um, and other ones that are very much kind of still very demonized and stigmatized. Yeah, I definitely feel that like something I've been struggling with for years and years. I used to work in like the nonprofit sector and doing public speaking around mental health. And I mean, something that always just became so apparent to me was like the, the, the talk of stigma and stigma free is like that was you know, in the US, that's like kind of the only thing we're willing to confront is like the idea that like, the language plays a role in how we interpret mental health. And and so basically, every single thing that we did in the nonprofit world was about, uh, you know, public acknowledgement campaigns or whatever, like it was just about destigmatizing mental health. And, and a lot of these things do not have like, actual material solutions for people with mental health. And so it really quickly becomes a like mental health becomes a field of linguistics, you know, that you're you're mostly just dealing with like, hey, like maybe we should not, you know, use schizophrenic to talk about someone that is just like 
behaving weirdly. And you're like, oh, what? I mean, sure, I guess. But like, maybe there are more, you know, problematic things happening in the world of schizophrenics, like <laughs> um, police brutalization and incarceration and homelessness. And, and it just seems like, to me, it's always felt like a scapegoat. Like if we can talk about destigmatization all the time, then we don't have to like talk about the, like the brutal suppression of people dealing with mental illness. Yeah, it's such a good point because I feel like they're like, we just need to break the stigma. We all just need to talk more. Like it often has such, um, it really doesn't acknowledge the material um, impacts and the material construction like of our experiences mm -hmm. and the fact that, like, yeah, like you say, I feel like you see a lot of this kind of movement in various kind of mental health spaces of people um, being really like, it's all about language. If we change the language we use, like you say, if we don't talk about illness, we talk about ordinary distress or, you know, like, yeah, we stop using diagnostic terms, then like oppression and stigma will go away. Um, which, you know, as we've already acknowledged, so much of that oppression is actually wrapped up in very material and structural things, mm -hmm. you know, our economic system, our structures of work, um, who's seen as like an exploitable person or, or not. And, you know, that shapes who, for example, might be incarcerated because of their mental health or not. Um, and this idea that we kind of just need to change the way we talk about things, I think doesn't, you know, it doesn't really even scrape the surface um, of the material aspects to the oppression of people who are categorized as mad or mentally ill. And I think it's, it, it is complicated because I, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about how I think we should interrogate the way that we approach diagnosis mm -hmm. and kind of think very critically about it. But at the same time, like, you know, illness very much works for some people as a conception. And I think mm -hmm. that's really valid. But other people, those terms, they feel stigmatizing and they don't want to use them. Um, but ultimately, I think we need to be looking at kind of these broader structures um, and acknowledging that, like, no matter what language or frameworks we use to um, describe ourselves, like, we're experiencing the same oppression, right? We're experiencing the same forces. Um, and those are very material, real ones. And I think that also, you know, this kind of, we just need to destigmatize thing. It doesn't account for the things that we've been talking about. Like, for example, okay, opening up about um, an anxiety, you know, experiencing anxiety. We often see that with like celebrities and like interviews and things like this. And it's like, you know, everyone will applaud that. But at the same time, like, we can't tell everyone to just open up and speak out and, you know, your problems would be solved if you do that because, you know, there are very material repercussions for some people, mm -hmm. you know, for example, if you're a single mother um, and you open up about your schizophrenia diagnosis, you might get your children taken away. Absolutely. Um, you might be incarcerated. Like we can't kind of pretend that the playing field is level for everyone and that there aren't different material outcomes um, depending on your positionality. Yeah, I mean, it's something that, like, just as, like, just a white dude, that I've had so many privileges to, like, just be able to speak, like, wildly openly about my mental health. And because I've been out of the workforce, so, workforce for so long, you know, I don't have the repercussions of a job firing me. I don't have those types mm -hmm. of things. But, I mean, it really becomes a thing where, like, there is a large safety concern. And whether the safety is, like, your physical safety or your, like, livelihood safety that, like there are so many barriers in which having, I think, just honest conversations about some of these things, like, becomes extremely difficult. Um, mm -hmm. Something I did want to get into is kind of this notion of anti-psychiatry, anti um, mm -hmm. just because I think for some people, there's, you know, a slight confusion about, like, exactly what this means. And even for me, that I've read a lot on this topic and spent a lot of time, like, thinking about these things, anti-psychiatry was popularized as a notion, you know, I think it was like the 1960s or 1950s with Thomas Cezaz, is that, I think that's his, uh, yeah. um, and he popularized this notion of anti-psychiatry, but really was like firmly cemented in kind of like the, the moral component of mental health that, you know, it wasn't really a diagnosable illness. It was just a bad person, but we've recently had like this growth of anti-psychiatry movement that is not part of that movement it's more of a part of like a liberation from like the confines of what uh psychiatry is kind of you know purpose is in this country um can you kind of talk about 
maybe the delineation between those two or, or, or specifically in like this more, I think, like leftist approach to like what mental health could be or should be. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So anti-psychiatry is so complicated. <laughs> yeah. something that throughout the book, it was quite, I think it took a long time for me to kind of get a grasp on like what it is and what we do with it now in the present day. So like you said, it was a movement that kind of uh, had a kind of um, explosion in the 1960s that was um, primarily led by psychiatrists. A lot of the biggest figureheads in the movement were psychiatrists themselves, um, dissenting against like the very foundations of psychiatry, which is, you know, this medical approach to mental health or mental illness. Um, And anti-psychiatry, it's kind of this umbrella term that actually um, encapsulated so many mm-hmm. different commitments. So like you said, there's Thomas Zaz. He was a very famous, I think, Hungarian psychiatrist um, who basically wrote this book called The Myth of Mental Illness. And his kind of key concept was that mental illness isn't real. Um, they're just kind of these labels that we use for what he called kind of problems in living. Um, but he was he was kind of a, um, a right-wing kind of thinker. So a lot of his ideas were very kind of libertarian and rooted in this idea of like kind of what we've been touching on. Like we just need to get rid of the labels. Um, and he was also kind of anti-institutions. But he was like, yeah, like once we kind of change the language and stop describing people as mentally ill, kind of like everyone should just be allowed to do what they want. Um, and I think that this kind of libertarian approach also like we should acknowledge like the ways that it can be oppressive, right? Because this idea of like we should all be able to do what we want like sometimes I think lapses into this concept that like we have free will and autonomy over our experiences you know like he he often kind of had this idea that like if you um are a person who is categorized as mentally ill you can kind of um get out of for example being sent to prison because you're now seen as like a sick person rather than a morally bad person so you see how these moral arguments kind of seep into that um, kind of wing of anti-psychiatry but then you also have people like rd lang who was like a scottish psychiatrist um in uh, uh yeah like in scotland and in the uk and he had kind of these ideas around um he was like for example things like schizophrenia you know, at the time, lots of people would say, oh, the things that people with this diagnosis say, um, like, it kind of, it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, it doesn't have any internal meaning. It doesn't mean anything. And Lang kind of had some of these ideas that were like, actually, what if we listen to the things that people are saying and try to kind of um, maybe metaphorically or just like kind of work out, like, what could it mean? What could it point towards? Um, and he did a lot of experimentation with like, psychedelics and loads of different kind of wild (laughs) things um but his kind of his idea was like the ways that we think about madness are very limited Mm -hmm. and maybe there's more creative possibility in it um and then you've also got people like Franco Basaglia who you know I think you touched on his work in Italy at the beginning he was like an anti-fascist like very left-wing um and he'd been imprisoned for anti-fascist activities um in his lifetime And so his approach was very much, you know, it wasn't about like, what labels do we use? He looked at psychiatric institutions, which were so prevalent at the time, like in the 1960s and 70s. And he was like, I've been in prison before, like these look like prisons Mm -hmm. uh, and we need to kind of deinstitutionalize and break down these institutions. So you've got loads of different approaches, but they're all being kind of grouped under this one umbrella. Um, And, you know, in the 19... 70s, 80s, you got this kind of big movement called deinstitutionalization, which is when um, governments across Europe and in the US as well um, closed down these asylums or mental hospitals en masse. There were mass closures of these institutions. And then you kind of see anti-psychiatry die down a bit. Um, But I do think, like you say, we're seeing a bit of a resurgence. Um, But I do think that we're seeing a bit more interrogation of you know these concepts like oh mental illness just isn't real like it's you know why do we use these labels I think we see people still being critical of these models but you know in the U.S. you've got collectives like Project Let's or like you know the Fireweed Collective lots of kind of um, mutual aid um, collectives that say 
okay, like we're for mad, mentally ill, neurodivergent people, you know, kind of you can describe for yourself what like what language you want to use and what makes sense for you. Um, and I think they are taking more of these kinds of material approaches that we've been describing. So looking at, for example, um, how does, because we say that institutionalization is over, but actually like lots of people still can be institutionalized mm-hmm. in these systems. We just kind of don't call it that. And so they kind of look at these institutions and say, okay, how does that actually, how can we join that up with, for example, the prison abolition um, movement? How can we draw these lines between these different systems and look at how, for example, you know, the homelessness crisis um, or economic crises, like how do these interact with uh, mental distress as well? Um, You know, policies like Eric Adams' policy in New York, where he was trying um, to institutionalize houseless people um, who uh, were deemed to be mentally ill, which is, you know, arbitrarily deemed by like police and people like that. Um, you know, a lot of these collectives have been resisting these very material kind of policy moves. Um, and I think that that's really exciting. And so, yeah, I think we often kind of, you see these conversations come up like anti-psychiatry, is it good or is it bad? <laughs> Should we be anti-psychiatry? Should we be pro-psychiatry? And for me, like, I think the most important thing to understand is that anti-psychiatry can mean so many different yeah. things. Um, and that I think it's like resisting control, like the control and power that is often exerted by the psychiatric system. Um, to me, that's the most important thing, not kind of um, battling one another over should we think of it as illness or not. Yeah, I think there's been, I would just say like the language of, I think the broader MAD studies is is a just a difficult thing to get into because it's playing on so much history and reusing terms and those types of things that like, I, I think if you just like read one passage, you're like, I'm, I'm not quite sure what this one is going to mean or whatever. Um, but I think uh, for anyone, uh, your book does a great job at kind of explaining like the history of how we, you know, arrive at these things and the kind of the future that we should be hoping for. And I, I think for anyone, I think, and I'll let you speak on it how you want, but like it, it really comes down to, I think in some sense, the way that I've tried to describe it to people is like viewing health and viewing mental health, like particularly at the individual level is like, we have to be conceptualizing things like more communally, like as it relates to our friends and family and like our social circles, because really like the interactions that we have as schizophrenics or, or any real mental illness is just like, it's just about work and it's just about, you know, like getting your medication. And like, I don't think like we actually conceptualize of like what actual good health can do, like if it's supported by more than just like your primary care doctor and then nothing else. And and I think it's like thinking of the expansion of what I think hospitals can be, expansion of what like care can be. And I think it's just like a reconceptualization of most of those things, because I think like that's kind of where, you know, in my mind, like actual like liberation comes from. It's it's not even just like, it's kind of dismantling some of like the previous notions, but it's also like the institution and, and not institutionalizations, but like the institutions that we have as like the most paramount form of care. It's like, we have to think beyond these things because uh, some of the things that they are creating, especially with like the incarceration of people with disabilities and uh, mental illnesses is just a growing phenomenon, especially in the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that this institutional framing, it can really limit our imaginations, like as Mm -hmm. you've kind of been touching on, like this thing of like, is therapy the best approach or is it medication or, you know, is it CBT? Is it mindfulness? Like we often see these battles about like, what is the blanket answer that's Mm going to like fix it all? Yeah. Um, And I think that like, you know, it's useful to draw on that, that call that um, Beatrice Adler Bolton and Artie Bierkant make in health communism, you know, all care for all people. Like we should have access to whatever care that we want. But I also think it's really important to remember that like so much of care and healing um, and mental health care are things that we don't even really think of as mental health care. Like, you know, having community, um, having access to these basic things like housing, like nourishing food, um, creativity, uh, like freedom from oppression, racism, transphobia, all of these things, like they are systemic issues that um, 
interact with our lives before we even reach the institution, mm-hmm. right? Before you even think I need to reach out to a mental health service or I need to get therapy. Um, and I think so many of these things, like we don't think of them as coming under that banner of mental health, but I make the call for what is often called a kind of radically socialized approach to health, which again applies to physical health too, right? Like what have we lived in a world with less pollution, with less carcinogens? Mm-hmm. Like we could have a world that um, really prevented this suffering and illness in the first place. Um, and to me, like that is healthcare and that is not confined to the institution. Like we could create a world where far fewer people even needed to come into contact with these institutions. I want to ask specifically about how you've seen things change uh, within the UK system with uh, the NIH funding. It's not being totally defunded or totally privatized or it is or it isn't. Like there's just like basically back and forth conversations about what healthcare in the United Kingdom is going to be like. And I'm just curious where you think it's at now and, and really particularly like where do you think it's headed and how will that like impact people? Because I mean, following along from the outside, from, you know, the middle of America, it's like, it's so confusing what's happening. I think it's confusing from all the <laughs> here as well. I think it's really confusing. It's interesting to hear people across the pond, like, often saying things like, you know, on the UK, they have this socialist healthcare system where it's really amazing. It's a beautiful healthcare system. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't know that you should, you should. Yeah, and here we're on this, like, crumbling island where you <laughs> you know we've got a million people on a mental health waiting list Mm -hmm. in the UK like the concept that we have um healthcare that is you know free and accessible um at the the point of access like it's just it's not true it's not the reality that we have and like yeah we've seen mass austerity so since around 2010 like we've had conservative governments that have um in succession defunded um, much of our healthcare system and like you said there's like increasing push towards privatization um and that has meant that um way more people have been on waiting lists but you know we're talking about these carceral kind of punishing elements of the system you know i personally think that these elements have increased in this period because if you sit on a waiting list for you know a year plus um for your mental health like your situation is often going to deteriorate and then by the time you kind of do get access to services you are in crisis. And so, you know, there are so many people who get to the point of being detained or what we call here being sectioned under the Mental Health Act, who if they'd been seen to uh, sooner, it wouldn't have got into a situation of crisis like that in the first place. Um, And so I do think, and you know, you see the same thing with the prison system, the worse the economic, social, political situation gets, like societally, um, I think the more we see people uh, being subject to these really punitive mm-hmm. measures um, because people have a lack of of choice. They have a lack of choices um, and autonomy um, over their lives and, you know, over their well-being. And so I think that's something that we're going to just see increasing, like, as, uh, I guess, if and as the economic and political situation seems to continue to get worse. Um, but I do think that that is something, it kind of sheds light on some a kind of nuance that I think that we need to hold in mind, which is that here, you know, we've got big kind of anti-austerity movements that sprung up when we got a kind of um, first conservative government in a while, which just say we need more funding, you know, more funding for all services. Um, and I think, you know, when we're looking at these anti-psychiatry arguments, you know, the arguments of lots of people who have been through these systems, lots of them are saying, we don't want expansion and more funding. We want these services, like we want them to be dismantled. Um, And that dismantling is obviously, you can align that with some conservative arguments, you know, they can be co-opted also Mm -hmm. by conservatives. And we saw that under Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher in the UK and under Ronald Reagan. Um, And so I think we need to kind of hold both, like hold the necessity of funding, um, funding services, but we need to also demand that those services are community controlled, like they're fully accessible. They are not carceral, like they don't involve forced institu- mm-hmm. institutionalization and treatment. Um, and so I kind of grapple a lot with this question of like, is it more funding or dismantling? And I kind of think it's both. I think we need to fund radically transformed approaches 
mental health. To me, it's very, like, it's just really reminiscent of the transition between the 70 to, 70s and 80s in the United States with, like, how we conceptualized health care or mental health care because, you know, in the 1970s, mental hospitals were pretty much flourishing, especially in, like, the 1960s with the civil rights movement in the United States. Like, the mental oh. health, mental hospitals were jam-packed with people. And then you you had this movement away from these, these anti-psychiatry movements, but even just, like, the larger public was aware that, you know, these asylums were horrible places. And so it became a thing of, like, yeah, we'll defund them. We, we will, like, close the asylums. And the solution by the system, the neoliberal solution, was immediately just put anyone either on the street or in prison. Like, it wasn't, like, provide better health care. It wasn't provide a way into a fulfilling life that that was never even really a consideration it was just like let's transition the mentally ill let's can like into either homelessness or a, a, a prison and where they can just rot and we will never speak of this problem again absolutely absolutely and i think that's why i really align my approach with like um, a group of people who will be described as revolutionary abolitionists which is not just about getting rid of institutions like um, Avia Sarah Day and Shanice McBean have written this um, book in the UK and they've done a lot of uh, feminist organizing in the UK context. And it's called Abolition Revolution. And they talk about this idea that like getting rid of prisons, getting rid of police, like, you know, that is the movement. But at the same time, that is not enough. Like mm -hmm. we need to revolutionize the very society that produced these institutions. And I think you can make the same argument with mental health um, systems like like you say like when they closed asylums um you know you've got ronald reagan doing it in the u.s and margaret thatcher doing it in the uk they weren't doing it out of the kindness <laughs> of <their heart. laughs> no it wasn't a charity move at all yeah they weren't doing it because they were like you know what you guys are right like yeah these yeah. are really bad we should get rid of them um they were doing it because they were neoliberal politicians who were trying to save money um and like you say people end up homeless people end up in prison and so i really do believe that we have to transform the society um, that produced these institutions. And also, you know, Margaret Thatcher called this policy where she closed all the institutions, she called it care in the community, <laughs> um, which is so insidious because yeah. that community care never manifested. Um, but I think that is what we do need. Like we need a world that produces less distress, but also a world where we um, can care for one another. We have mm -hmm. the infrastructure and resources to care for one another like I said, before people would ever get to the point of needing to engage with any institution. It's really obvious reading works like yours and, and health communism that like the what should happen with mental illness is a form of solidarity with other people. It's like realizing the the harms that the system has caused. Like these are these are directed at so many people and like raising solidarity with other people from the prison abolition movements to, you know, just housing uh, movements all across the board like these are these are forms that you can like build up communities and mm -hmm. I kind of want to get into it's kind of a weird transition but there's been such a growth of the TikTokification of mental health and mm -hmm. I think maybe I'll start with like kind of a simple question that is not simple in any way shape or form but do you think like the the profound openness in which TikTok audience or tiktok creators and audiences talk about mental health like do you think this is like has shown any form of you know like solidarity or is it just been like more of just like a continuation of just like the content creator you know like you're just making content more than anything it's not you know it's not really forming communities it's mostly just you know clicks and likes and stuff <laughs> I think it's really complicated because yeah. also I'm not deep in TikTok at all. <laughs> I've, you know, I've seen a bit of like the trends that are happening and I, I've also seen it, you know, across other platforms. And I think that maybe it's a bit of both. Um, I personally think, you know, with neurodivergence, especially, I have had lots of like, like I've learned a lot about myself. I've gained a lot of self-understanding and also a lot of community through these kind of online discussions of neurodivergence um, and being like, oh, does anyone else do this? Oh, I do that too. Like, is that a thing about this diagnosis? And we come together and learn more about ourselves. And I think that also what you see, especially I think in autistic communities, like you have seen, I think a bit of a radical 
reclaiming and reshaping of how we think about a category like autism. You know, the psychiatric or more medical model would say, you know, it's a disorder, it's something, you know, that is like makes you inherently defective and it needs to be fixed. And, you know, you see these narratives of cure, but actually autistic communities online have often completely redefined what it means to actually be autistic. You know, you see people saying, you don't need a diagnosis, like self-diagnosis is completely valid. Like, or, you know, women with autism saying, actually, like these diagnostic like criteria are like, these aren't true. Like mm-hmm. th- that's not what it means to be autistic. Um, and people really, you know, talking about uh, being neurotypical, talking about actually, let's let's talk about um, the norm that autism is constructed um, in the shadow of. And actually let's interrogate that. Like maybe being neurotypical isn't a good thing. <laughs> And I think that that's really political. Um, but at the same time, I have equally seen on TikTok kind of discussions that really do reinforce this, like, it's, you know, what they call uh, in philosophy, they often call like a natural fact. This mm-hmm. idea that it's just this kind of God-given, objective, uh, internal, biological category um, that isn't shaped by the political world. And, you know, the, you know the whole thing, you often see it on TikTok. <laughs> like, did you know that if you... I don't know if you do this thing or if your finger is longer than the other <laughs> finger or well, if you do this, like that means you have ADHD. And it's a bit like, well, <laughs> like, it's not, it's not really, there aren't really hard lines like that. Like it's so contextual, like mm-hmm. it depends so much on so many things. And I kind of, I, I think that on social media, we can see these trends towards identity politics in, uh, in the sense of like, um, you know, we've seen it like, with feminism being like, oh, if you're a woman CEO, like that's a great thing, <laughs> this kind of thing. And I think that sometimes we do see that with mental health um, and psychiatric diagnosis, this idea of it's just this personal individual thing. Um, and like, we don't need to look at it as anything broader. And I really argue against that in the book. I really argue that I think that, you know, uh, you might have one diagnosis and I have a completely different diagnosis, but what unites us like that shouldn't be something that fractures us like we actually are subject to many of the same powers um and we should be coming together so i think social media is kind of a mess of all of (laughs) things interacting um and yeah i kind of resist the idea that it's either like good or bad well i have to say as a schizophrenic with a decent sized platform I couldn't agree more. <laughs> like it's it's a, such a complicated thing. Um, Has that been your experience? Yeah, I'm mean, because I think there's there's so many times in which like making a viral video about you know lived experiences or something can be like a healthy a healthy way to share some type of message about what you know schizophrenia is like in the in the real world. But it also can be like it can be a quick way for to to invite derision into your comment section and harassment and. I think there is in general, like with, especially in the mental health field of like conceptualizing uh, mental health and diagnostics in particular, you know, I think there's just been, I think a lot of people have latched on to diagnostics in a, in a way that really in some ways just like, like does more to support the medical models of health and wellness than it does to kind of play around with the ways in which like society has harmed people. And so it, it is a really difficult, uh, it is a difficult thing. And I can't wait for the, the future book by someone on like TikTok and mental health. Cause I mean, like, I know someone's had to have, you know, started a dissertation or something on this topic because it is, it is a phenomenon that if you're online, you've experienced some, you've experienced like, the ADHD side or the autism side or the, you know, the schizophrenia side is because these are extremely viral trends within like how we conceptualize and talk about illness. But I think ultimately like it's, you know, whatever is good it, to, to build solidarity with other creators and with audiences and with just your working people like that would, that's what's good. And, uh, you know, it's hard to just, talk about these things so broadly because there's so much content and that's and that's the thing is we we only see a fraction of those bits but sometimes we do see the bad ones you know like (laughs) i kind of want to see more embracing of like these blurry gray areas as well Mm -hmm. like you know how like i don't know i feel like i hear like my friends parents and stuff often being like oh all the kids these days like everyone thinks they have adhd and like you know i think there is like a 
there's been a big upsurge in like self-identification and diagnosis but it's like what if like lots of us do look at the diagnostic criteria for ADHD and think oh like some of that does feel like me and Mm -hmm. maybe not all of it but you know I think that that also is like a very valid experience and that should lead us towards interrogating okay well how is ADHD constructed within our material context like why do we live in a world where like attention is such a valuable form um thing that lends towards exploitation and you know like acknowledging that like some of us do sit in the grayer areas like I definitely have it with diagnoses like OCD like there have been times in my life where I think I really identify with it other times where I'm like oh it's just not so present in my life and like I'm okay with that ambivalence like I don't think it's like this objective thing that either I have or I don't have I still think that I benefit from like engaging with some of those communities and you know sharing resources and information and stuff like that Um, but I acknowledge that I'm in this kind of weird in between with it. I think like just one of the best things these conversations have is just kind of I think in some way it's delegitimizing the notions of like the status quo because I think like ultimately like this is what's important for progress is like reevaluations of where we're at or or how the diagnostic system works and specifically like in the United States like diagnostics are basically only used in order to get insurance funding like it's not actually t- to like provide you with like some form of self therapy or identification or of like meeting an in group of people with your same illness. It's like, no, it's so they can correctly bill for whatever they're treating you for. And so, yeah, I think dismantling our ideas of the medical system, but of the medical models of healthcare are so important. And uh, it will definitely be something that like this podcast will keep focusing on. But um Sadly, we were running out of time. I did want to thank you so much for coming on. This has been such a great conversation to have. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, they can find me on Twitter uh, at Misha underscore Fraser. So that's M-I-C-H-A underscore F-R-A-Z-E-R. Um, or on Instagram at Misha underscore Fraser Carroll. So Misha again, M-I-C-H-A underscore F-R-A-Z-E-R. C A My parents did not give me <laughs> to find. I mean, once yeah, once you Google me, like there's no one else with that name. I guess <laughs> that um, is that is a convenient thing that I've noticed about myself too. It's like I'm the only one that's going to come up. Like I, you know, I've got a weird last name, so like it, you can find me pretty easily. I did want to yeah. ask. Uh, I really enjoyed your book. We've talked about health communism quite a bit, uh, which is also a phenomenal book. So people definitely check out both of those. Uh, but I'd love to know what is what are some books that you've been reading or that you really love during your research projects? Like just give some people some some really good book recommendations. Yeah, health communism was gonna be my recommendation. <laughs> um there's a really amazing book called Black Disability Politics, um, by Sammy Shulk, who is an academic and activist in the US. Um, and I think that's like a really um kind of seminal text looking at the intersection between Uh, race and blackness and disability Um, and she kind of she looks at a lot of the historical activism of the Black Panther Party and argues that a lot of what they were doing was actually a form of disability politics Mm. and like says that people didn't call it that or even now looking back a lot of people wouldn't identify it as disability organizing and disability justice but she looks at for example um their kind of community care programs and a lot of the medical centers and things that they were setting up and you know this is often kind of towards towards the end of like the Black Panther Party a lot of this was their focus and lots of kind of academics will say oh they kind of um they kind of decreased in popularity like they kind of fell off towards the end and she argues well no they actually started broadening out and thinking about how does racism fundamentally interact with disablement Um, And she also just has like a really nuanced approach to things like, you know, whether people choose to identify as disabled or not. Um, She looks a lot kind of how, um, you know, in some black communities, actually taking on another label like might kind of bring on more stigma or how kind of even our conception of disability is very shaped around whiteness and just very nuanced and very accessible. Every chapter she's like, in this chapter, I will say, and then that's it. <laughs> I do, I do kind of love when they do that because th- there are sometimes you're reading a book and you're like, oh man, I I've lost the plot, you know, like. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> and then at the end, she always says, "In this chapter, 
I said. <laughs> I love that. I've had it on my shelf for a little while, so I am definitely going to pick it up after I get back from vacation. That is that is definitely one that I want to check out. Thank you, Misha, so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, everyone, you should go check out Mad World. Uh, you can find it uh, in the link in the in my bio. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in for another week. Uh, help keep this podcast going ad-free by supporting and becoming a patron on Patreon at patreon.com slash schizoreads. This podcast was edited by Tone Support. Find out more information at tone.support and check out the links in my bio for Misha's social medias and where you can buy these books. Thank you so much for coming on. Mm-hmm.